Well, we're going to jump into the scriptures this morning. We're starting, well, we're not starting a new series because Mitch started us off last week. But the new series is going to be from the book of Acts, and it's called Snapshots of the Early Church. So we're going to be looking at different sections of the book of Acts. The book of Acts is a narrative, which means it, it's sort of like a history. It tells a little bit of what happened in the earliest part of the church. After Jesus rose from the dead and started the, the church, what happens after that? That's what we have in the book of Acts. Um, so we're going to be looking at snapshots, different parts of the book of Acts. So that's why behind me, you may notice there are little snapshots, literally snapshots of our own local church. Uh, you may see uh, some pictures of there. We just had a baptism last week, and you can see Sydney up there, half underwater. And uh, Mitch doing the baptism and worship, and basically our four core values there right behind us. But uh, we are going to be looking at today, Acts chapter 9. Last week, Mitch started us off in Acts chapter 2, talking about Pentecost, which is really the beginning of the Christian church. So a perfect place to begin our snapshots. We're going to be skipping ahead to chapter 9. And by the way, we may not go in order. We may actually go to 9 and then a little back and forward and and so forth, depending on what's going on in the life of our church. But uh, we're going to be looking at Acts 9, which talks about... The conversion of the Apostle Paul. Actually, he's called Saul. Saul, Paul are the same people in Scripture. Saul of Tarsus, Paul uh, the Apostle. Uh, Saul was his Hebrew name, his Aramaic name. Paul was his Greek name. So he goes typically by Saul, uh, and then he switches to Paul when he's talking to the, the Gentiles. And Paul is really one of the most important people in the Bible for this reason. He wrote most of the New Testament. So most of the New Testament, if you don't know this, you're not familiar with the scriptures, are letters. They're letters from Paul written to different local churches. Rome, Galatia, Corinth, Thessalonica, all these different places. He writes letters to the churches there, and that's the majority of the New Testament, is what we have here. He's also the one who primarily, with a team, but he was the leader of the team, reached most of the Roman Empire, the early Roman Empire with the gospel. So he was the one out there preaching, reaching much of the early uh, world for Christ. And we're going to look at his coming to faith in Jesus in Acts chapter 9. Actually, in the book of Acts, there are three different times in which his conversion is described. And that was a literary device in a a book. If you wrote three times basically the same thing over and over again, uh, you were trying to really emphasize it as central in, uh, in importance to what you're trying to say. But here we're going to see how he comes to faith in Jesus, how he comes to faith in Christ, what we learn is that God saves sinners. He saves sinners and then uses them for ministry. If you've never heard this, it may be surprising for you. Acts chapter 9, going to verse 20. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord... He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. 
So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to a street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is prayed. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to go to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. God saves sinners. And he uses them for ministry. There's an outline in your bulletin if you're someone who likes to look ahead and see where we're going or take notes. Feel free to do that. Uh, We're going to look at first Jesus saves sinners like us. (laughs) Because that's all there is, right? That's all there is is sinners. There's nobody in this room who's not a sinner. Perhaps you're here and you don't believe you are a sinner. I think I could, in in a five-minute conversation, I think I could prove to you that you yourself even know you are a sinner. But here we see Saul. Uh, He is... Uh, described as breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Saul was a Pharisee. So before he was converted, he was a Pharisee. And he was actively persecuting the church. Actively seeking to destroy the church. He's described only a chapter earlier this way. And Saul approved of Stephen's execution. Stephen is the first martyr, the first one to die for his faith as a Christian. He was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women... And committed them to prison. So here now, Paul has actually gone to the high priest, sort of the one in charge, and asked for letters to go to Damascus. He's willing to travel far to go and to persecute Christians. And and if anyone he finds, men and women, so imagine that he's literally dragging women out of their homes, away from their kids, and taking them to prison along with the men. He takes them back to Jerusalem bound in chains for their faith. Now, we don't know if he actually, how many Christians Paul was actually... I'm going to call him Paul most of the sermon, by the way, just because it's in my mind. But how many Christians he was actually responsible for killing. We know at least the one, Stephen, but he's breathing out murder, meaning he's threatening to take their lives, and it's very likely that he was responsible for taking the lives of a number of them. He is ready and willing to kill. He describes the Christians as here as those belonging to the way. By the way, that's what they were called at first. They weren't called Christians until later on in Acts. Actually, in the book of Acts, we learn when they're first called Christians. But they belong to the way. Why is that? Because Jesus said, he's the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. So the followers of the way are those who belong to Christ. The point being, friends, 
Before we move on to how his conversion is that Saul, or Paul, was a bad dude. <laughs> he was a bad guy. He was not a good guy. In fact, he calls himself later on in Scripture as the chief of sinners. He was a terrorist. That's how we would, modern, we would describe him in modern terms. He terrorized Christians. Friends, we have plenty of these type of people around the world today. In all different countries. Of course, we recently heard about the attacks in Egypt but there are plenty who terrorize Christians seeking to destroy the church. If you had met Paul before his conversion coming up here, you would have probably ran away, first of all. <laughs> you wouldn't want to be near him, because if you're a Christian, he's after you. But you would think this is the last person in the world who would ever follow Jesus. He hates Jesus. He hates Christians. He's out to destroy them, even take their lives. Now, here's the interesting thing we learn. Sometimes you look at this and say, well, look, at this is a one-time thing. Jesus comes down and changes him. Actually, Jesus says in a different uh, part of Acts, it's hard for you, Saul, to kick against the goats, which means already God has been goading him. You know what a goat is, right? It's how you move cattle or horses. You could have prod them in a certain direction. So actually, he's saying God has already been prodding him towards faith in Jesus even before that, before this. Where, how so? Well, one, he's a student of the law. He's a Pharisee. He's been studying the scriptures. And as Mitch kind of pointed out last week, if you read the scriptures with, an, with the right eyes, you can see that the whole thing points to Jesus. More than that, he was overseeing Stephen's death. And when Stephen argued before he died, what does it say? It said nobody could stand up to the wisdom of Stephen. So even Paul is sitting there overseeing his death, listening to Stephen and realizing, I don't have an answer for a lot of the stuff he's saying. But I think for the biggest mark that he's being prodded, that shows that already he's moving that direction, is why is he so zealous against the Christian faith? You ever heard the term, thou dost protest too much, right? Why are you so angry? Why are you so zealous against this faith? Because you've met something that doesn't sit well with you, that you know needs to be stopped. Saul, in a sense, is the one who's really in prison as he meets those who have true zeal, a better zeal, not just a zeal to kill, but a zeal to die for Christ. Point, friends, is that Jesus saves sinners just like us. In fact, Paul's life shows that God can save anyone. He can save anyone. You know, sometimes I have people, maybe you've had people come up to you and say, I don't think God could forgive me. Pastor Rick, you don't know some of the stuff I've done. I mean, I could, I could tell you some stuff and then you'll, you'll realize there's no way that God could ever forgive me. And my response is, have you ever killed any Christians? <laughs> and most people would say no to that question. Well, guess what then? You're not the worst sinner that God's ever saved because he saved people far worse than that. God saves sinners. Now, I love to read stories of conversions. If you're someone who likes to read, and if you're someone who doesn't like to read, this is a good thing to force yourself to do. Read stories of how God transforms lives. The last three I've read, is one is by Andrew Claven, uh, called The Good, Great Thing. Uh, he was a mystery writer, famous mystery writer. A lot of his books actually became movies. You've probably seen a lot of his movies. And uh, he now had this, he was, grew up as a secular Jew and came to a point in which he said, I didn't become insane, I became sane. <laughs> He realized how insane his life had been. And then he came, when God gave him a certain clarity, he came to faith in Christ. I think I, I 
uh, we lended the book to Mitch, who's reading it now. So, Another one I read is by Rosario Butterfield. Rosario Butterfield was a professor of English at Syracuse University, professor of queer theory, and herself an active lesbian, when a loving pastor and his wife invited her into their home and began to share with her the gospel. And at first, not only their witness, but their example began to set in as she herself gave her life to Christ. The latest one, I'm actually still reading it, uh, is by a guy named Mo- Mosab Hassan Youssef, called The Son of Hamas. So I haven't read it, I can't necessarily uh, recommend the entire book right now, but he was the son of one of the leaders of Hamas, the terrorist organization. Grew up in that, he was sort of next in line to even take over in Hamas, when God brought him to himself by faith. Friends, God saves sinners because there's no other type of person to save, that's all there is. You are not too far from God. That I can guarantee you. Because no one is. And God shows it again and again and again in history and today. That sinners are brought to faith in him. Let's look at what happens here with Paul, verses 3 through 9. Jesus meets us where we are. He meets us where we are. As Paul is literally on the road to Damascus, he's heading to Damascus in order to persecute Christians. That's the very reason he's going there. What happens? He sees this light from heaven, this this bright light. And we learn this is at the noonday in a desert. So you can imagine how bright is this light that is brighter than the noonday sun in the desert there in Damascus. And yet it's so blinding that he falls to his ground, falls to the ground. So he's on his knees and he says, uh, he hears a voice that says, Saul, Saul, knows him by name. Why are you persecuting me? Me, personally, you're persecuting me. I'm not sure if Paul ever actually met Jesus himself. That's not the point. He's persecuting his people, which is to persecute Christ himself. Paul asks him, who are you, Lord? He says, I am Jesus, the one you're persecuting. Gives him instructions to go into the city. And he's blinded and he begins to fast. The other men who are with him don't actually see what he sees, but they can hear the voice. You know, it's interesting. We learn a lot about coming to faith in Jesus right here. A lot about it. In fact, a lot of Paul's theology, we believe, actually comes right out of his own conversion. Right here it shows that he's saved by grace alone. Paul didn't do anything to earn his meeting with Jesus here. It wasn't that he had gone through a certain number of steps and ceremonies and sacraments till he reached a certain point, and then God decided to save him. It wasn't that he was such a good person, you know, he was just such a loving, kind neighbor, took care of everybody, loved orphans and widows. No, in fact, we learn, as we said, he's out there murdering people. God saves him by grace and by grace alone. It's the only way somebody is saved is by the mercy of God, his unmerited favor for us. We learn about Jesus' unity with his people. In fact, Jesus is so united with his people that though he's probably never met Paul, Paul's persecution of Christians is the same as persecuting Jesus himself. And we learn how much of part of the Bible that becomes our union with Christ, that we are united with Jesus as our Savior. And we learn, friends, that His doctrine of election that not everybody sees Jesus. At least not at this point in time. Saul himself was chosen by God and he reveals his son to Paul at this time. But friends, here's what I would say. Coming to faith in Christ is something that is true for every Christian. 
Every Christian meets Jesus. Now let me be clear on this. Not every Christian meets Jesus the way Paul did. (laughs) In fact, I would guess very, very, very few people actually meet Jesus the way Paul just met Jesus. I mean, have actually seen Jesus, an appearance of Jesus in a vision or even in the flesh or whatever that's going on. And my guess is that is not true of the vast majority of people and probably 100% of the people here. Maybe you have a story to tell me. Come talk to me afterwards. I'd love to hear it. But that's not the way we typically meet Jesus. I would say it's not impossible. It is absolutely true that that God may still work in this way. In fact, right now you hear a lot of stories about particularly in the Muslim world, people coming to faith in Jesus because of dreams, because of visions of Jesus. Now, I'm a skeptic by nature. So I'm thinking, I don't know, are these stories real? And I'm kind of looking into them. And uh, I I try to find some, some actually good trustworthy, legitimate sources. This is Christianity Today. So it's one of the most legitimate uh, sources of of Christian uh, news you're going to find. Here's a description. It says, One Sunday, a young Muslim woman, unnamed, because for security reasons, visited the church of Pastor Mata. He's the leader of a local ministry and tearfully told him that she had intended to make fun of you when I started watching your videos on the internet. So she's going to the church to mock it and to make fun of it. But the things I was hearing from you spoke to me of the love I was looking, always looking for. And the words of faith and courage were doing away with my fears, she said. The woman said hearing the gospel transformed her heart, which eventually led her to conversion to Christianity. However, she remained hesitant to join other Christians in worship services. She says that was when Jesus appeared to her in a dream. In my dream, Jesus led me to the church telling me, What are you still waiting for? Follow my way. She told the pastor, And I saw all of you there waiting for me, smiling at me. Before I met you, I saw you in my dream. Thanks be to God. Or here's another one, Open Doors USA, a mission organization, again, trustworthy, described a man by the name of Tofiq. Tofiq grew up attending Islamic schools. He rose to the position of an imam in his East African village. Tofiq trained to become an imam for 24 years at an Islamic madrasa school in Africa. In school, I only learned about Islam, he says. Parts of our teaching were about destroying Christianity. So we did what we learned by attacking Christians once we finished our training. Our teachers would tell us every time there was a new church in town, and we were told to go and attack the people and destroy the church. So that's what we did. We beat them, attacked the church, and burned their Bibles. Tofik was later selected by the local mosque to be trained in Saudi Arabia for further Islamic studies. After finishing his education in Saudi Arabia, he returned to become an imam in his village. He led, to the, construction, he led the construction of 16 mosques in the area. He also imposed a rule no village leaders or visitors could preach Christianity in his town. One night, in the midst of his zeal for Islam, his journey to Christ unexpectedly began. There was an incident, he writes, in 2002, where I had a vision from the Lord early in the morning around 3 a.m. He said, in the vision, I saw Jesus very clearly telling me to follow him. His wife and his children were reluctant to accept the idea of following Jesus, but Tofiq could not ignore the visions, and he began attending church. After attending his first church service, Tofiq asked to meet the leaders. Initially, they were suspicious, (laughs) as we're going to see with Ananias here, of his motives, knowing his reputation as one of the most influential Islamic leaders in the area. I told them about my dreams and everything else, so they accepted me and prayed for me, he said. The news of my attending the church spread quickly back home, and many people started to cry, thinking of me as good as dead. Because in Islam, when you convert to another religion, people receive it 
that way. Is God still working this way? Absolutely. But let me just say this, friends. The, the point is not that you have to have a vision of Jesus that stops you in the middle of a road on your way to persecute Christians, because that's probably not going to be your story. But all Christians meet Jesus personally, in relationship. Now, maybe you guys are saying, I, you know, Pastor Rick, and this, this, I hear this all the time, I look back at my life and I can't think of a time when I didn't believe. I grew up with Christian parents, as a kid, I went to you know, Sunday school, I learned the Bible, I've always believed, and I've always believed Jesus to be my Savior. If that's your story, I would say, that is great. <laughs> Give glory to God. That's an amazing story. I mean, how many people would wish that they had that story? That's not something to look down upon at all. The question in Scripture is not, did you have this amazing experience? The question is, are you now trusting in Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord? That's the real question. Whatever happened in the past, are you now trusting Him as the Savior and the Lord over your life? Does He know you by name? Saul, Saul, Rick, Johnny, whatever your name is. And do you know Him by name? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Paul is known by the Lord, and he knows the Lord. Right, so have you met Jesus? All Christians have met Jesus and have a relationship with him personally and really. Look where it goes from there in verses 10 to 14. Jesus then calls us to connect with Christians. Uh, it's amazing. I love how the story continues. There's a disciple in uh, this city of Damascus whose name is Ananias. His name is Ananias. So he's kind of switched scenes away from Paul over to Damascus and take a look at what's going on in there. I like what uh, Barclay says. He's one of the forgotten heroes of the Bible, Ananias. Try to put yourself in his shoes. Imagine the fear <laughs> that he must have. Uh, this Paul, or this Saul of Tarsus, is a terrorist. And he is coming to Damascus to intentionally arrest and perhaps even kill Christians. And then you get this vision that says, I want you to go meet him. I want you to go straight to his house. I know exactly where he is. He's at uh, Judas' house on Straight Street. Judas was probably a friend of uh, Paul or of Saul. Straight Street, by the way, is still existent in the Middle East right now. It's a big road that runs right through the city. Uh, but go right there. Go to his house where J Judas is. So Judas must have been known to Ananias. And I want you to meet him. And what does he do? He listens to the Lord and he goes. And ends up being a crucial snapshot of Acts. By the way, that's not Ananias. But that's kind of what I would guess Ananias would look like, right? The, the, on the picture behind me. Something like that is what he would look like. See, the question is, why this whole blindness snapshot? What, what's the point of all of that? Why does he have to be blinded? Why does he have to go meet Ananias? Why does Ananias have to pray over him? Couldn't God just heal him right from the spot and send him off? And What's going on here? Well, one, I think it humbles him. But also, friends, it forces him, by God's providence and grace, to get connected to other Christians. It forces him to now depend upon and meet and be encouraged and discipled by other Christians. It makes it clear to Saul that you are not alone. You're not a lone ranger Christian here to do it all on your own. You have a church. You have people that surround you that you need and that need you. It gets him connected, not only to Ananias, but as we learn later in the passage, that he goes and begins to meet with the disciples there in Damascus. He meets with the church there. He's part of the body right from the beginning. Friends, Christians need to be connected to others. Uh, you know the most dangerous place for a new Christian to be? Alone. 
alone is the most dangerous place for a new Christian to be. And the most important place for a new Christian to be is with a church where he or she can be encouraged, learn the word, be built up, watch the faith of others who have been walking with the Lord longer, learn from them how to withstand some of the bumps and the bruises and the twists and the turns of the Christian life and continue on in the faith. I mean, you think about it. Saul is brilliant, by the way. He is one of the most educated men you'll ever meet. He was studied under Gamaliel, one of the greatest rabbis. Uh, we know about Gamaliel outside of the scripture. Gamaliel was such a well-known figure, ancient rabbi in the first century. He knows the Torah better than Ananias. I bet you he could quote it, or he could quote and uh, knows his way around the, the Torah easily. He could run circles around Ananias in his understanding of the scriptures. He has a unique call, a very public call, as we're going to see here. And yet he still needs Ananias. He's not too good, he's not too smart, he's not too knowledgeable to still need the church. He needs God's people. Friends, the church needs you as well. We, we get to gather, we get to celebrate God's grace together. You know, we already had uh, two baptismal uh, services. What a joy it is to celebrate God's grace. And now others are coming and saying they need to be baptized as well, including uh, Julian, Mallory's nine-year-old son. We're going to celebrate God's grace and work in people's lives. Friends, your, your gifting is needed and the church needs you and you need the local church. God makes a point to immediately connect, in, uh, connect Saul to Ananias, who then brings him to the local church there in Damascus. And then verses 15 to 20, Jesus has a unique ministry for you, for me, for each of us. He has a unique ministry for each of us. So in Ananias, in verse 15, is sort of arguing with Jesus, which never goes well, by the way. <laughs> but he's saying, Lord, I mean, don't you know who this guy is? Yeah, I know who this guy is. I created him. <laughs> Remember that? But he's, in other words, he's sort of arguing with him that, I don't know, do you know, I've, I really should be meeting this, this terrorist, Saul, who's coming to this town for the very purpose of arresting me and my family and people like me. And God explains to him what Saul's calling will be. He says, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. And this is unique to Paul. This isn't necessarily a call for all Christians, but he is going to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings. And we learn that later on in the book of Acts. He literally stands before these governing authorities and ultimately before Caesar and to the children of Israel. Paul will be a very public figure in his witness and in his ministry. So Ananias obeys the Lord, goes to the house, prays for Paul. And what happens? He regains his sight. Something like scales fall from his eyes. A powerful physical symbol of what's happening spiritually in his life right now. Being able to finally see who Christ really is. Being away, blinded from his sin and from his zeal and from his legalism. And he receives the Holy Spirit. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. From that point forward, he, is, he rises and he's baptized, most likely, I would think, by Ananias. He got the opportunity to baptize uh, Paul right, right here. And what does he do in verse 20? He's already out there preaching that Jesus is the Son of God. That's Paul's calling. But here's the neat thing. Everyone's calling for ministry is unique. And every Christian, by the way, is called to do ministry. Paul's calling is as a very public figure, as a missionary to the Gentiles, as a preacher, and somebody who will suffer greatly. Now we all suffer, every Christian will suffer, but all to different degrees. Here, God, the Lord Jesus, makes it clear that Paul's suffering will be intense. Just as he has caused great suffering for God's people, so he's going to endure great suffering for God's people and for the Lord. Ananias' calling is very different. 
seems to be a pretty private Christian, just not a public figure, just a faithful servant there in Damascus that God uses to lead Paul to faith or to instruct him forward and ultimately probably to baptize him. Very different callings for very different people. What about Judas on Straight Street? I don't know. Did he come to faith? Why did God have Saul go to Judas's house and have Ananias meet him there? Did Judas hear the gospel while he was there? What about those traveling with Paul who didn't hear the gospel? Did they eventually come to faith? In the book of Acts, friends, you have all different people with all different unique callings. And God has a different story for each of them. This is Paul's story and how his, his unique call to ministry. Ananias has his unique call to ministry. Each of us have our own unique calling, what God is calling us to do. Here's the thing, friends. All sinners need to meet Jesus. That's true for everyone. <laughs> now, we meet him in different ways, as I said. All sinners, all, I mean, all Christians need to connect to other Christians. And we do that in different ways, too. There are different churches. There are different groups that we meet with. In the same way, friends, that we're all called to ministry, but those ministries are different for each person. We meet Christ, and then God has some work for us to do. (laughs) And he uses the gifts, the skills, the talents that you have to serve him. Uh, We're having our nominating committee just met this morning, and uh, we're looking to see different people plugged into different areas of ministry. So you may be approached today, or maybe already have been, or maybe later this week, to say, hey, would you be interested in serving in this ministry or that ministry? That's part of what we're called to do, to now use the gifts, the talents, the skills that God has given us to serve Him. God had actually been preparing Paul since before birth. He knew all that would happen until He brought him to this point and then uses him for ministry. Friends, God saves sinners. And he uses them for ministry. He saves sinners. He meets them along the way. He connects them to others. And he calls them to ministry. This is one snapshot of a conversion. Of a man coming to faith in Jesus. There's some things about this that are unique. And there's some things about this that are the same for all of us. Friends, let's pray. Let's pray that God does this again and again. Here and now. Let's pray he does it with our kids who are upstairs in Kid Town right now. That they would learn about the Lord Jesus, meet him along the way, and be connected to other Christians. Let's pray he does this with our teenagers who met for youth group last Sunday. Let's pray he does it with our adults. Let's pray he does it with our seniors here. And let's pray that the Lord brings more to come to meet him along the way. God saves sinners and uses them for ministry. Would you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word this morning. Thank you so much for the way you work in each of our individual lives. Thank you, Father, that you save sinners. And we are all sinners. Our sins are diverse as there are people here. But sin itself, which is to turn away from you and to your word and your will, can be forgiven and grace is shown. We thank you, Lord, that you meet us, that we can know you personally. Not just know about you from the scriptures, not just have knowledge in our heads, but know you relationally, know you personally, to walk with you, to enjoy your presence, to worship you, and to one day be with you in person for eternity. 
I thank you, Father, for the blessing of connecting with other Christians that we are called to do this together. In fact, no Christian is called to do it alone, at least not for the long term. There are seasons, perhaps, but we're called to do this with one another. Help us, Lord, to connect well as your people. And I thank you, Father, that you call us to ministry. Not just a select few who carry the title pastor, but all of us are called to ministry. And you have uniquely equipped us to do that ministry. Whether that's more like Ananias who sits back and perhaps with tears in his eyes gets to see Paul go under the water and come up in celebration of the grace of God in his life. Whether that's more like a Paul who gets out into the public and preaches and teaches and shares the gospel or any other number of different callings and unique giftings that you give us. We thank you, Father, that you save sinners and that you use us for ministry. Use us here at our church, Lord, and bring many to yourself by faith in Christ. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.